Hello, this is the Who the Heck is This Guy podcast with Akiva Weisinger, and I'd like to begin with this podcast about Ibn Ezra asking you, if you could have one person over for dinner from Jewish history, who would you have? Now, this question was first posed to me in my interview for high school. You know, I was sitting there uh, as a eighth grader. Uh, you know, I was a pretty smart eighth grader, but you know, I didn't know what to expect. And they're asking me questions about like, I don't know, my extracurriculars. I don't even remember. But uh, the last question was, if you could have, if you could uh, go to dinner with any person from Jewish history, who would you go? To, who would you have over for dinner or go to dinner with? Uh, I don't remember the exact wording of the question, but. Uh, the general gist of the question I remember and I hope I have conveyed to you. And I didn't know what to respond because that's such a vague question. Like, what are the criteria involved in, like, in inviting somebody to dinner? How, how do I know who the best person to invite for dinner is? Uh, so I just answered the first thing that came to my mind, which was because my name is Akiva, Rabbi Akiva. And then they asked me why, and then I made some stuff up. I don't know. Uh, he seemed to be important in reestablishing... Uh, I don't even remember what I said. Um, apparently, um, my parents were told that the most impressive thing about that interview was that I did not answer a character from Tanakh and instead answered somebody from a later point in Jewish history. And to that I say the same thing that I say when my wife tells me that she found me attractive the first time she met me, which is, thank God for low standards. But let's tackle this question seriously, though, because I didn't have time to think about this question uh, when I got the question. And what criteria do we uh, are we going to have for having someone over for dinner? So here's the thing. I want to have someone over who's fun, who I will enjoy the time I spent with them. Uh, I've asked this question to people, and they'll say, like, Moshe, the Rambam, Herzl, okay? Those are all great people, but I don't think anyone came away from dinner at their house going, damn, that was fun. I mean, this is not even a criticism of them. It feels sacrilegious to go, hey, the Rambam seems like he'd be a fun guy. Listen, the Rambam was many things. Fun is probably not among them. That's who he was. Um, I mean, we don't necessarily know that, actually. I remember I was uh, doing research on the Rambam for something, and I found an account of somebody who stayed at the Rambam's house, and he said, uh, he. I don't know what the context was exactly, but I remember he said that the Rambam laughed, and I did not know what to do with that piece of information because I cannot... I cannot picture the Rambam laughing. He is very so very staid and serious and no-nonsense in his, in his works that I can't understand him laughing. Maybe he was a fun guy. I don't know. It's not like, uh, it's not like legal texts have the mo um, give off the most personality in the world. Um, I, so I want somebody who's witty, who's a storyteller, who has broad life experiences and has a lot of different interests and a lot to say. Somebody who you know is opinionated, who I can discuss things with, and have uh, 
hear perspectives I wouldn't have heard before. And that's why I want the Ibn Ezra. Why? Let's pour ourselves a beer and have dinner with the Ibn Ezra, okay? So, Rabbi Avram Ibn Ezra, and even though Ibn Ezra means son of Ezra, his that's his family name. His father's name was Meir. So he was born around 1089 in Navarre, Spain. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, but I'm reading it as it says, Navarre. Okay, Spain. And he was educated in the Spanish Golden Age tradition. What's the Spanish Golden Age? There was a point in Jewish history where the where Spain was a really great place for Jews, not and there was a lot of uh, you know scholarship and knowledge going around, and uh, Jews participated in the wider culture, and they learned not just Jewish subjects but Arabic literature, philosophy, science, astronomy, poetry, grammar, very cultured. Uh, uh, very cultured era for the Jews. Um, the the prime example of like Golden Age Spain is Yehuda Levi, who wrote the the work the Kuzari, um, which is a philosophical work, but it rejects pretty much all philosophy. It's sort of an anti philosophical philosophical work. We'll get to Yehuda Levi when we do like who the heck is. Uh, those you know poems uh, and songs were like, hey, look what I can do, and you you can't. Um, he wrote love songs, um, and not always towards women. Fun fact. Uh, I'm not gonna go further into that, but uh, enjoy that tidbit. Okay. Um, and if you look at Ibn Ezra's comment on uh, Exodus 31.3, or Shemot Lamed Aleph, uh, Lamed Aleph Gimel, he's describing B'Tselel, who's the, uh, the artist who uh, made the Mishkan, and he says, B'Tselel was filled with every subject of mathematics, algebra, geometry, astronomy, science, and the secrets of the soul. He had advantage over all of the men of his generation, he knew every discipline, while many of the wise of heart did not know even one discipline. This is why it says in every discipline. Uh, so, first of all, you see the list of subjects which Ibn Ezra defines as, you know, being knowledgeable. Also, you see a little bit of his personality right now in that um, he's clearly talking not just about, you know, the Bronze Age in which the Mishkan was built. He's talking about now. And uh, you can see a little bit of his uh, academic snobbiness, uh, academic snobbiness of, uh, you know, all the men of the generation uh, didn't even know one discipline, but Salah knew all the disciplines. Uh, I've done a lot of work to get where I am, and these people don't know what they're talking about, I think is the, under, uh, is the underlying subtext here. Um, so... Golden Age Spain uh, is where the Ibn is from until 1140, uh, which is approximately, I don't know, uh, I can't do math. I don't know exactly how, he's like 35, 40, 50 maybe. Uh, his main work up until that point is poetry, 
occasionally with Jewish themes and also secular themes like love, wine, and friendship. Uh, he's a participant in the Golden Age of Spain culture. Um, so, Golden Age Spain, very nice place. Jews are involved in the culture. Jews are doing great Jewish things. Uh, that all changed when the Almohads attacked. Uh, I know that's a pop culture reference, but I don't know what it's to. That is my, you know, gift to the kids out there who get that cultural reference. I know it's a cultural reference. I don't know what it's to. Um, who are the Almohads? They're a Muslim sect uh, that persecuted Jews. What do they believe? Um, I had once had a teacher who was uh, very into uh, Maimonides, the Rambam, and, uh, you know, he's telling the life story of the Rambam, who, uh, just to give you a sense of the time, uh, in which this takes place. The Rambam is an infant when this happens. Him, him and Ibn Ezra are going through the same thing at very different stages in their life. The Rambam is like the next generation after the Ibn Ezra. So this rabbi that I had uh, in you know high school, very big fan of the Rambam, and he's describing the Alma, and you know, very, his legal philosophy uh, was, you know, uh, you go back to the basics, which is for his purposes defined as the Rambam, and then you know, reject everything else that came uh, across it. So he's describing the Almohads as, uh, you know, they rejected, uh, you know, the accrued, uh, the the accrued, you know, scholarship over the time and over, you know, the uh, over the years of, you know, Muslim interpretation, and went back to the basics. Um, which yeah, and when and the very strong implication that he was giving was that, you know, they may have tried to kill the Rambam, but they were correct, which was an interesting thing for a rabbi to be saying. Um, anyway, uh, and you see that the Ibn Ezra took this hard. Um, you know, one of his poems he's describing. Uh, you know, the, the fall of Golden Age Spain, uh, the source two on, for those of you using a source sheet, uh, he, you know, this is an English translation and it rhymes, but uh, I've, I've never trusted rhyming translations, but that's what we got to go on. Here it goes. Uh, Alas, the rain upon Spain from heaven was foul. Greatly distressed did the West, hands trembling to howl. The Torah with, was withdrawn, the holy writ gone, and the mission was hidden, and the Talmud barren stood, for all its glory was overridden. Cordoba was stunned and wholly abandoned, became like the sea's desolation. The names of the sages and warriors for the ages died in famine and privation. End quote. Um... So you see, he took the fall of Spain pretty hard. Um, so after he's he is uh, is kicked out of Spain, he takes on the life of a wanderer. Uh, his travels took him all across the known world, from North Africa to what is now Israel, to Italy, to France, to Germany, and to England. Um, he dies in uh, what is it? Let me check here. Eleven sixty seven. Uh, so most of what his work uh, that we know of is in 27 years, which is pretty impressive. Um, he dies either in England or in France. Um, by the way, England, uh, you have this one guy. Yay for you. Most of English history, uh, the Jews were not allowed in, so they don't really have much people. Ibn Ezra was in London. So you have that one guy. Anyway, um, the legend about him dying in England is that... Uh, a bunch of demon dogs attacked him because he denied the existence of demons. Okay, whatever. Maybe he died in France, maybe he died in England, maybe there were demon dogs involved. Okay. Um, along the way, he meets some cool people. 
we have his correspondence with Rabbeinu Town, uh, the uh, you know master, the the tyrant of the school of the Tosafists. Uh, I will get into when we get to the Gemara section. I will get into why I call uh, Rabbeinu Tam a tyrant, but uh, you know, dashing tyrant, uh, charismatic tyrant, but ruled over Ashkenaz with an iron fist. And uh, here's part of his. Uh, and they wrote poetry to each other. They wrote, uh, you know, uh, letters to each other that worked uh, worked with poetry. And Ibn Ezra's response to one of Rabbeinu Tam's uh, one of Rabbeinu Tam's letters is, um, let me read this to you. What gall brings the uh, what gall brings the gall in ver- in verses abode? Why is this Frenchman doing poetry? Like a stranger in the temple, no fear to tread, where Yaakov to make, uh, Yaakov was the name of Rabbeinu Tam, where Yaakov to make sweet as the manna his ode, I am the sun that melts his heavenly bread, which is a uh, reference to a uh, reference to uh, a verse in uh, Exodus. Uh, that's from his correspondence with the Rainer Town. Basically, he's saying, you know, this the the intellectual snobbiness from his uh, golden age of Spain is still there. He's basically asking, like, where did a backwater hick Frenchman like you learn to write poetry? And then Rabbeinu Tom, uh, ends up Rabbeinu Tom ends up writing to him, like, I, I guess I did. And then Ibn Ezra's like, uh, uh, I didn't mean to insult you uh, because nobody messed with Rabbeinu Tom. Um, so while he's doing all this traveling, meeting cool people. To make ends meet, Ibn Ezra began to translate Arabic works of science, philosophy, and grammar into the language of, of, the, of the places he found himself in. Uh, he does this for money, but he also does this uh, because he wants to bring the values and knowledge of the Golden Age Spain to his new homes. And uh, you know, over the course of those 27 years in which he was do, writing and doing his stuff, he writes dozens of works, po- probably over 100, on a number of topics, including grammar, philosophy, science, as well as the Torah commentaries he's most known for and will be the subject of this podcast. Um, he's actually historically significant because he serves as sort of a middleman between the East and the West, uh, between like Muslim countries and Christian countries. And he's almost sort of, uh, I, I, you know, the, the analogy I would, I would use, he's, he's a typhoid Mary of Arabic philosophy and science in the West. Um, you know, he, you know, spreads the contagion of philosophy. Uh, that makes it sound like much more sinister than it actually is. Um, uh, to wherever he goes. He is probably responsible for bringing the zero to Europe. Uh, you know, before Arabic numerals and before, you know, Europe had the concept of zero. Uh, you know, Roman numerals don't have a zero place, and uh, you know, zero allows you to do all that. You know, addition and subtraction with you know lining up the le- uh, lining up the numbers, and then you know carrying the ones place and stuff like that. Um, and uh, zero is pretty important. It also you know you could also play around with negative numbers once you have a zero. Uh, he is probably responsible for bringing the uh, zero to Europe. His contributions to astronomy get him a crater on the moon named after him, one of two medieval rabbis to have uh, a crater on the moon named after him. The other is Gersonides Ralbag. Um, 
Also a fun fact is that a uh, Robert Browning ends up writing a poem that is uh, inspired by Rabbi uh, Rabbi Ibn Ezra, Rabbi Ben Ezra or Rabbi Ibn Ezra, and one of the lines of that poem, uh, "Grow old with me," uh, ends up uh, inspiring a John Lennon song. So, uh, as far as I know, he is the only Rishon, the only medieval authority to uh, indirectly re- inspire a rock song. Okay. Um, so despite the fact that he's doing all this amazing stuff and, you know, doing it to make ends meet, he's never really financially stable. Uh, and we know that because he complains about it. Um, you know, this poem that we have in translation over here, uh, you know, is a masterpiece of complaining. Uh, here it goes. On the day I was born, the unalterable stars altered. If I decided to sell lamps... It wouldn't get dark till the day I died. Some stars, whatever I do, I'm a failure before I begin. If I suddenly decided to sell shrouds, people would suddenly stop dying. Uh, yeah, so that's the Ibn Ezra saying, you know, I'm so unlucky that if I started to sell shrouds, then, you know, nobody would die ever again. Um, so, besides for the fact that he's, you know, never financially stable, uh, he's traveling around all the time, and traveling is a uh, lonely. Traveling is a generally a lonely experience. Not that traveling is not an enriching experience. In fact, we have areas, uh, things in his commentary that are you know directly inspired by his uh, travels. For instance, when he's talking about the plague of darkness, Makas Choshech, uh, he says, um, you know. In the sea, in in the sea uh, uh, that is, you know, in the Mediterranean Sea, uh, when you're like way out in way out in the ocean and uh, way out in the sea, and you're not, uh, uh, and you know it's dark out and there's no lights out, uh, it gets really dark and you can't, you know, distinguish anything from each other. And I should know, I did that many times. Uh, so. His travels enrich his commentary as well, but it's a lonely uh, existence and a lonely endeavor. Uh, so we see that Ibn Ezra tries to entertain himself in a, in a lot of different ways. Uh, one thing he loves is uh, riddles. Uh, so here's uh, one of his riddles. Let's see if you can figure it out. Um, he's you know challenging you to talk. What am I talking about in this? Uh, In a country without soil, from nights to the blood royal, they walk with no toil. If the king is made spoil, all shuffle off this mortal coil. He's talking about a game of chess. If the king is gone, then everybody dies. Right? That's chess. Um, This is a big theme in his commentary as well. He really enjoys giving you riddles. Um, here's here's a relatively benign one, but one that's interesting nonetheless. Uh, when you're talking about the uh, Sir Azazel, the, the goat for Azazel that is thrown off the cliff in part of the Yom Kippur service. Um, so, you know, a lot of commentators are asking, what the hell's going on here? Why are we throwing a goat off the cliff? That is not normally part of our religious experience. 
so Ibn Ezra talks about a bunch of different things. At the end of his comment on his on you know the Seer La Zazel, he says, Tedas Sodo Vesod Shemo, know its secret and the secret of its name. Kiesh Lochavirim Bemikra. It has because it has friends in Scripture. Vani beremes. I will give you a little bit of the secret in a hint. ben When you are 33, you will understand. Yeah, when you're grown up, you'll understand. Um, so he's telling you the secret to you know the Sir Lazazel is when you're 33. What does this mean? So a lot of commentators you know try to figure out what this real means. Uh, the accepted answer, the, the answer that is most probable to this, is if you count 33 psukim, 33 verses, from the verse in which he makes his comment, you get the following following pasuk, the following verse. Uh, uh, talking about, you know, uh, you know, idols or, you know, uh, foreign, wor- uh, you know, gods that, uh, you know, the Jews shouldn't worship, uh, and that they may offer their sacrifices no more to the goat demons after whom they stray. Uh, this shall be to them a law for all time throughout the ages. So, Ebenezer seems to be saying, first of all, note goat demons. Besides for being hilarious, um, you know, the Sir Lazazel is a goat that's thrown off, you know, a mountain cliff. And, you know, 33 psukum later, it says, you know, that they that they may sacrifice no more to the goat demons. So, and then we have this, you know, Azazel word, and what is that? Uh, so Ibn Ezra seems to be saying here that there was a god named Azazel. He was a goat demon, and the uh, the service to him used to be uh, was something like throwing him off, uh, throwing a goat off a cliff, or something like that. Or uh, maybe it wasn't. He's implying there's a connection between this, you know, goat demon and the Sir Lazazel. Uh, that tells you, that, first of all, uh, you know, he's probably correct that there's some connection there. And he's way ahead of his time in that regard. He's already starting to see a little bit of connections between, like, you know, ancient Near East studies and, uh, you know, understanding the biblical text. Uh, Rambam will also do this, but he's, you know, beginning to understand this sort of thing. Um, but here, that's not even the most, uh, you know, interesting thing in which Ibn Ezra might have been ahead of his time. I can't talk about the Ibn Ezra without talking about the Soj Shemasar, the secret of the Twelve. Um, this is the thing in Ibn Ezra that caused people like Spinoza and a lot of people nowadays to say that uh, he was a forerunner of biblical criticism, i.e. Uh, the idea that the Torah was not written by Moses it was, or, you know, written by God, given to Moses. It was written by, you know, a collection of authors over, uh, over a period of time. Because Ibn Ezra on the first uh, verse in the uh, book of Deuteronomy, the first passage in the uh, book of Devarim, uh, that passage, that that verse says that uh, Moshe said these words while he was on the other side of the river. Now, Ibn Ezra wants you to note for over here that if you're saying he's on the other side of the river and that you know saying that he was outside the land of Israel, you're already you're saying that 
you know, you're already in the land of Israel, which means that you weren't necessarily there. Uh, so that's interesting. Um, and Ibn Ezra will say the following uh, about that. Um, note that mo uh, accordingly... Nope. Just got to So the final 12 verses of... Uh, sorry, I'm like getting a little bit confused as to finding the right place to start. Um, in order to explain, like this this idea that you know across the uh, that uh, you know there seems to be uh, anachronistic phrases that are in this this verse uh, and he uh, you know relates it to a debate in the Talmud about uh, whether who wrote the last couple of verses in the Torah uh, that say that Moshe died because it couldn't have been Moshe right well, some say that Moshe wrote them and then, you know, wrote them with prophecy. And some say that Yoshua wrote them afterwards. And uh, building off of that, he says, if you can grasp the mystery behind the following problematic passages, uh, number one, the final 12 verses of this book that say Moshe wrote, um, another one in the book of Genesis, at that time the Canaanites dwelt in the land, which implies that, you know, we're... The Canaanites were no longer in the land, which means that it's not written at the time that the Canaanites were in the land. Um, in the mountain of God, he will he will appear. Um, you know, twelve verses that seem to imply that there is later additions to the Torah. So basically, what you need to know is that in all those twelve places, he'll say, you know. This the secret of the twelve, the Soj Namasar, and in one place I believe he says Vahamas and Vahamaskil and those who understand it shall remain silent. So he seems to be implying that there are authors of the Torah after Moshe who you know add these anachronistic phrases that wouldn't make sense if Moshe is writing it at the time. Um, and he's also saying it's some sort of secret, which leads uh, leads people to think, oh, well, maybe, you know, he thought that the Torah wasn't written by Moshe, and maybe he's like, you know, just like us biblical critics who don't believe the Torah is written by God. Uh, the problem is that in other places, he'll say, like, um, one one thing uh, one one thing that appears in the Klamish is that when he's talking about the lineage of Asav, it says, uh, you know, until, and he ruled until there was a king in Israel. The problem is, at the time the Torah is written, there's no king. So what is it talking about? So Ibn Ezra says, um, we're talking about Moshe. And he quotes a Karite commentator who says, um, who, who says that this is talking about Yehoshaphat, and this Parsha was written, uh, it's talking about Shaul, and the king Yehoshaphat writ this later. Um, this, this commentator is named Yitzchaki. And Ibn Ezra responds, Hachi Karashima, uh, or Yitzchak, Hachi Karashima Yitzchak, um, that's why they call him Yitzchak, Kolashimea Yitzchaklo, because everybody who hears this co uh, comment will laugh at him. Um, and he ends up saying, uh, not only, you know, that it's laughable, but also that his book should be burnt. Uh, so that seems to be either a self-incriminating statement or a statement that, your, the view ascribed to Ibn Ezra is not the view that um, he actually had. Um, 
just to resolve any crises of faith, faith here, I do not think Ibn Ezra thought that the Torah wasn't written by God or wasn't written by Moshe. I think he may have thought that there are later, some later editions, but nothing past the point of, like, uh, first couple of Nevi'im. Um, and obviously that's a bit of, like, an explosive, uh, an explosive kind of idea, and he wanted to keep that secret. Uh, that's, I think, what Ibn Ezra's going for. I don't think he thought that, you know, the Torah is not written by Moshe, but what you see here is that the man liked to send people on riddles. He liked the idea of, like, giving people, you know, a little bit of crumbs to, you know, send people after to figure out what I'm actually saying. It might have also been, you know, self-preservation, you know, wanted to say stuff that he got away with, but I'm much more a believer in personality of, you know, it's not just – historians tend to think of you know, choices that people made as like they were doing this because of this reason. Sometimes the reason is – and I think sometimes we discount the possibility that like that's just who they were. Ibn Ezra enjoyed giving people riddles. Uh, it may have been self-preservation, but there was also the fact that he enjoyed it. Um, speaking of enjoying, another thing he enjoyed was palindromes. Uh, I apologize if you're not looking at the source sheet because I'll tell you some palindromes that the Ibn Ezra – you know, he just liked to doodle this stuff as he's as he's traveling. He writes uh, one one palindrome: Avi el chai shemecha lama melech mashiach lo yavo. If you think about it, uh, if you you know can picture the letters going backwards, you know first the last letter of the sentence is an, uh, an aleph, and then a bays, and then a yud, and then an uh, aleph, and then uh, lamid, and it proceeds as, uh, proceeds as follows. There's another one. Dama avichem ki lo vosh evosh shuv ashuv alechem ki vamoed. If you're looking at the source sheet that I give you, you should be able to see it. If you're just listening, just take my word for it. He liked palindromes. Uh, another thing about Ibn Ezra's personality, in a way that you know we can see that he liked to amuse himself, is he had a great sense of humor. Um, Here's, here's an example. He writes a poem about a fly that's bothering him. You know, he's trying, I imagine he's like trying to write and there's a fly that's bothering him and he writes this long, dramatic, you know, somewhat satirical, uh, you know, dirge about this fly that's bothering him. Like, here it goes. Who could I turn to in my distress? The flies have plundered my home. They will not leave me a minute of peace, attacking me fiercely like foes. Across my eyelids and eyes they race, in my ears they recite their poems. Like a pack of hungry wolves, they devour my bread when I'm eating alone. And as though I'd ask them over like friends, they take what they want on their own. It seems they're only seeking the share when I offer them lamb and wine. That, it turns out, isn't enough. They also covet, covet what's covet what's mine. If I summon guests to come and dine at the head of the table, they swarm. And so I long for winter, lest I starve because of them. It's cold and rain will wipe them out. Thank God, who dwells with the cherubim. Uh, very long and involved poem about how flies are annoying. Truly timeless stuff. Uh, but where you really see Ibn Ezra's, not only his sense of humor, but his razor-sharp wit, is in his commentary. As we'll see, a lot of his commentary is dismissing people who aren't as smart as him. Um, again, the intellectual snobbiness is a little bit there. Um, and he'll quote commentators who, you know, give an interpretation, and then he'll wittily, and we saw this a little bit with, uh, you know, 
Yitzchak with that idea that he dismisses he turned his name into like a way to put him uh, a way to put him down um, well so when he's dealing with other commentators and wants to dismiss their idea he's not content with just going like you know I want to just you know that idea doesn't work he wants to put a spin on it I don't think this was mean-spirited as much he's just he's I don't think he saw himself necessarily as like, you know, a powerful person who, you know, will ruin somebody else's career if I put them down. It's more like he's having fun. He's he I think he sees himself as a little bit of an underdog and, you know, he's he's wittily like throwing away arguments. Um, here's one, okay? Uh, on the word rakot, um, which is describing how Leia's eyes uh, looked when it's describing uh, you know, uh, Yaakov comes to the house of Lavan and there's, you know, two sisters. One of them, Rachel, is, you know, very beautiful. The other one has Enayim Rakos, soft eyes. That may be, uh, you know, a Bronze Age version of, but she's got a great personality, whatever. Um, so Ibn Ezra is discussing what he thinks that means. And he quotes a commentary named Ben Ephraim. Uven Ephraim Amar, and Ben Ephraim says... Shehu chaser aleph, that this word, rakos, is missing an aleph, vitamo arukot, and it should say arukot, long. She had long eyes, or perhaps long eyelash, uh, eyelashes. And here's how he rejects that idea. Vehu haya chaser aleph, and he is missing an aleph. This is not just, you know, a child, childish insult, by the way. This is not just, and he's missing an owl. The first time I saw it, it was just like, ah, he's, he, you know, came back with this, like, childish comeback. No, take the word Ephraim, which is spelled Aleph, Pei, Resh, Yud, Mem, and then take away the Aleph from that, and it spells Parim, which is cows. By, you know, taking that guy's argument and applying it to his name, he's effectively called him a cow. Um... You see his his wit and just taking that like one detail and then like throwing it back to him. Um, I once saw uh, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky in his commentary uh, explain this joke. I imagine there are people who are like trying to read in like some some sort of uh, you know deeper meaning. Uh, Aleph is representative of this, and Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky is just like it's a joke. He's making a joke. Calm down. Uh, here's another one, uh, which also coincident coincidentally involves a cow. Uh, there's there's a verse talking about like when a cow gores its fellow cow, um, and there's a commentary named Benzuta, uh, and he says, um, you know, uh, you know, gores uh, when a cow gores the uh, cow of its fellow is that is what the verse says, and Benzuta says he means the fellow cow, uh, as opposed to the cow of the cow of the owner's fellow, in other words, another owner of another cow. Um, so, you know, his companion cow is Benzuta's explanation. And Ibn Ezra th throws that aside with one, one sentence. Ve'ain l'ashor rea rak Benzuta levado. Uh, and the only friend this cow, the only companion this cow has is Benzuta alone. Uh... He's taken that like idea of the Shorayehu, and he's you know turned it back on Benzuta. Uh, Ibn Ezra like cow-based insults. I want to give you a. Uh, this is my personal favorite, um, and you know this doesn't involve cows. Uh, so 
what's going on here? Um, I'm not quite, I didn't quite get into the Pusuk involved, um, but there is a constellation in the sky, um, Orion, which in Hebrew terminology is named Kassil. Kassil also means fool. Uh, and this, uh, this, this commentator that uh, Ibn Ezra is going to, to rip apart is a um, Rabbi Marinus, uh, something like that, uh, says that, uh, you know, She'echad hu k'sil bashamayim, that, you know, this term, the, there apparently is like the use of the word, uh, use of the number one and uh, uh, the word k'sil, and he says like the uh, uh, one k'sil that's in heaven. Um, so remember, k'sil could mean the constellation up there, it could mean fool down here. Vani Omer, and Ibn Ezra is going to respond to this. Vani Omer, uh, if there is but one ksil in the heavens, rabim heim ba'aretz, there are many on earth, v'hu echad mehem, and he is one of them. He's taken that structure of echad ksil. It's not just, you know, he's calling him a fool. He's taken that structure of the, the guy's own comments of, you know, echad ksil, and like reversed it. Uh, you know, if there's one seal in the heavens, there is there are many on earth, and he is one of them. The symmetry of that, uh, the, you can tell it's that he's witty, and he, by the construction of it, it, there's a symmetry to how he's doing this. Um, so, you know, I think he would have made a great rap battler. Um, you know, I can't help but think of Hamilton when I hear, like, how he's able to take these, you know, the exact words and, like, turn them back at his, uh, uh back at his opponent. Like in, you know, Hamilton when, uh, uh, you know, Jefferson says, if the shoe fits, wear it. And then Hamilton in, like, you know, his rap will say, uh, you know, bend down, I'll show you where my shoe fits. Uh, apologies to the people who came here just for the Torah for that slight inappropriate reference um just trying to market this to the kids man um so you know he would have made a, a a great rap battler i think um and that brings us to his commentary and or more accurately the introduction to his commentary why do i say it's bringing us to his commentary uh the introduction to his commentary is completely in rhyme it is three pages of rhyming couplets and it is about how all the other commentators don't know what they're doing, and I know what they're doing. He dismisses all the other commentators and uh, in rhyming couplets, and you know c concludes with his own uh, concludes with his own commentary and why it's awesome. Um, and I'm going to read you some of the Hebrew to give it you a sense of the poetry, but you know I'm going to translate as I go along and uh, you know sum up. Um, so. The, the analogy he's going to use, the, the allegory he's going to use is picture a circle, okay? You know, a circle uh, is a collection of points surrounding one point. And in the center of that circle, the one point that all the other points are surrounding, in this Ibn Ezra allegory, is the correct approach to biblical commentary, which I, you know, think you will be surprised to know is his own. Um, surrounding that center is a bunch of other circles which miss the center. You know, they're all missing the center, and Ibn Ezra's hitting the center. And he's going to explain why they miss the center. 
um, either they miss the center or they're sometimes completely out of the circle or they, you know, go around, they, they don't really go, uh, in the circle. Uh, he's going to describe four different approaches, which miss the point, miss the central point of biblical commentary and why he thinks that. Um, so, uh, the first category he's going to reject is philosophically based commentaries. Uh, I'll read you the first part. The first way is long and wide. And uh, the um, people of our generation have, you know, uh, uh, exalted it. And if the truth is a point in the circle, this uh, this way, this method of biblical commentary is like their circumference of the circle. Uh, it's the uh, in other words, he's saying this just goes around and around the circle. He's poking fun a little bit at like the length of uh, philosophical category, uh, philosophical commentary. Um, you know, you're just going around and around in circles, and you're not getting any closer to the truth. Um, you know, the, the type of commentary he's, he's, you know, bashing over here is a type of commentary which seeks to explain how, like, there are philosophical truths in this, uh, in, in the Torah there's, you know, and explain, like, why this science, and explain how this teaches a science or philosophy. Um, he's going to conclude the following. Uh, and whatever point there is to traveling on this path, the only, uh, you know, uh, the only advantage of this type of commentary is its length. More accurately, uh, just to give you the sense of the rhyme. Varot zalamod al chachamot chitzanit niyim lamdei misifrei anshei tivunot. Basically, if you want to if you want science, read a science book. Uh, you know, trying to convey philosophical or scientific truths uh, just uh, as the point of your commentary, even though Ibn Ezra will do a lot of that. Uh, that's not biblical commentary. That is just turning it into a science book. We see a little bit of the snobby intellectual again with, uh, you know, you're just going around and around in a circle. He's, you know, making fun of the length of it. You're just, you know, wasting everybody's time. Okay. Second approach is Karaites. Okay. Um, Karaites were a movement uh, that were opposed to the readings of Chazal, uh, to the, uh, you know, halachic, to the legal and narrative exegesis of the sages. Um, you know, they rejected the authority of the sages to interpret the Torah and said, we should interpret the Torah by ourselves. We don't need rabbis to do it. That sounds, you know, very nice and good. Uh, the problem is, is that any community of readers of texts is going to develop a tradition as to how to read those texts. As evidence to the fact, as evidence, Karaites, after a few generations, always develop their own traditions of how to read the text. And then a couple of generations later, somebody is going, what the hell is wrong with us? We developed a tradition of reading the text. We're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to, like, reject that entirely. Let's start over. Um, you know, when people ask me, how do we know that the rabbis were correct and the Karaites were wrong? Uh, you know, uh, people think it's like a big existential 
tough question. It's not. It's just basically that you know you can't have a reading of the text without a tradition of how to read the text. The Karaites did that despite themselves. We might as well go with the people who have uh, who had that into, uh, tradition already. Anyway, so they reject Chazal's reading entirely. Let's read uh, Ibn Ezra in time. Uh, in, inside, I'm just going to not read the Hebrew because the way that I've uh, done the windows on the, uh, the the way I've done the windows on my computer is crimping the you know uh, the indentations I made for each poetic line and it's throwing off my reading. I'm just not going to do it. Okay, so second approach to the Karaites, they reject Chazal's reading entirely, um, and he rejects the Karaites on a number of grounds. Uh, number one, they don't know Hebrew. They, they're interpreting these things wrong. Um, you know, notice the fact that that's a technical problem, not a faith problem. He's not saying that the Karaites are wrong because they're Kofrim. He's trying to ground his uh, opposition to the Karaites on, you know, purely technical, philological grounds. That's important um, because he's trying to argue on their own level. Um, by the way, just so you know, the Ibn Ezra wrote Shabbos Miros, uh, you know, songs sung at the Shabbos table, and one of his mirrors, Ki Eshmer HaShabbos, uh, look at it at home. Uh, every single stanza in Ki Eshmer HaShabbos is an anti-Karite polemic. It's describing a practice on Shabbos that the Karaites didn't do. Um, and uh, basically, he concludes that that portion of, we accept Chazal's reading of legal portions, of uh, legal portions of the Torah, uh, and uh, we rely, you know, there's a continuity between the written Torah and the, and the you know, oral Torah, and uh, we rely on Chazal's reading of legal, portion, of legal portions, but I'm also going to textually justify those. Uh, the third approach that the Ibn Ezra describes is the allegorical approach. Uh, I dare, uh, you know... I fix the problem. Okay. The third way is, uh, you know, darkness and darkness. It's totally out of the circle. Uh, these are the people who read allegorical and symbolic meanings into the text. He's mostly talking about Christians. Christian symbolic readings, where it's like, you know, this is actually talking about Jesus. No, it's not. It's talking about like, you know, Yitzchak, you know, no, it's actually talking about Jesus. Uh, he's going to reject that because uh, read the text. But he says sometimes you do need to read allegorically. This is very important uh, because this is a foundational text for, you know, when do we read the Torah literally or not? That's a big question. And Ibn Ezra is going to say here, sometimes you need to read allegorically. For example, there's a passage that says, you know, I will, I will circumcise your heart. Uh, obviously, and Ibn Ezra goes, obviously, this is not literal. Whenever I, uh, I uh, heard that, uh, whenever I heard that, uh, basically, I, I, I thought, people don't realize how funny this is, and I think he picked that for the humor, not just for the illustration. I think he, you're supposed to laugh at, like, obviously, you can't circumcise your heart, then you die. Okay. Um, and he concludes... 
as uh, because you know uh, making an evaluation is the main principle because the Torah was not given to people who don't have knowledge and the uh, messenger between God and uh, between man and God is his uh, is his seichel, is his you know intelligence. Um, more or less what uh, Ibn Ezra is saying is, God gave you, God gave you a brain, use it. Um, if you see something which doesn't make any sense, read literally, then you need to read allegorically. In a sense, that is literally reading because, you know, the intent is to convey an allegorical point. Going back to our example, uh, the point of, you know, I will circumcise your heart is not to, you know, give directions for open heart surgery. Uh, that is not the simple way of understanding it. The simple way of understanding it is this is a metaphor. Um, so that is the third approach, which he will re he he also rejects. is completely out of the circle this allegorical thing. But sometimes you need to use allegory. and now the fourth approach. The fourth approach is close to the point. aguda. And this is the Midrashic approach. Um, uh, this is the way of the sages. Uh, in the lands of the Greeks and the Romans, you know, the Western world. Because they do not look to the uh, you know, evaluation of grammar. They only rely on, you know, midrashic statements like the, you know, collections of midrashim called Lekachtov and Orinayim. Um, so he criticizes midrashic reading, midrashic reading exclusively, as uh, even though it's close to the dot, uh, it's not attentive enough to grammar, and obviously not all midrashim are shot. That's what he's going to say in this section, that, you know, some have hidden meanings, some are for children, some are, you know, against halacha. Uh, not all midrashim are, you know, in the pshat. Not all, the intent of the verses is not necessarily midrashim. Some of them are their own purposes. Some of them are definitely meant as biblical interpretation, but some, and you cannot necessarily apply midrashim to the text. Um, he, he, the exa the analogy he uses is like midrash is like clues on the body. Um, you know, they are, uh, you know, necessary, necessary to have clothes on the body, but don't confuse that with, you know, the actual person. Um, you know, the way he's going to conclude is, uh, asher ma'at hasechel bilibo, uh, someone who doesn't, someone who has any bit of intelligence in his heart, the avki asher chachmat elokim bikirbo, and even if he's, you know, fill, uh, uh, filled with, you know, knowledge of God, uh, you could, you know, take midrash, you could take out midrashim. And uh, you know, render them as you know against the the, the body of the pshat um, because they are like clothes for the pshat. And the uh, the uh, ancients, uh, you know, blessed be their. Uh, uh, blessed be their memory, said on this, in mikra yotze midib shuto. The uh, verse does not uh, go away from its plain meaning. 
that, you know, you can apply all the Midrashim you want, there's a plain meaning of the text, and you can't ignore that. Uh, the fifth approach, so let's move on to the fifth approach, um, which is the right stuff, Ibn Ezra's approach. Haderik hacham ishit musad aleha ishit, the, uh, you know the fifth path, which is my personal, which is my personal preference. That is uh, right in my eyes. Uh, you know, in front of my God, in, in front of the face of God. Uh, notice, by the way, that um, you know his the his rhyme scheme depends on uh, the name of God being pronounced as Adonai. Uh, which is interesting because it shows that it's at least that old. Anyway, Asher Mimenu Levado Ira Velo Isa Panim Batora. You know, who who alone I fear, I will not, uh, you know, show favorites when uh, learning Torah. Ve'achbash Hetev Diktuk Kol Mila Kol Mila and will find the meaning of each of you know the grammar of each word with all of. Uh, with all of my strength, and now, uh, and afterwards, I will explain it. However, it seems to me. However, it seems to me, uh, he's going to pay attention to grammar. He's going to t- interpret the words as they appear to him. He's going to po- pay close attention to the words. The uh, whole, uh, Sorry. And any uh, word that needs an explanation, I will find. I will find the explanation for. Uh, basically, saying he's going to pay attention to grammar. He's going to interpret every word based on like you know how it's used in scripture, how it's used throughout the the whole Torah. Um, he also ends up saying he's not going to pay attention to small stuff like whether a thing has an extra letter. Um, this also applies to his general approach. Changes in word choice, he's not so you know uh, not so careful on. He's not so uh, he's he's not so concerned with. Uh, he says only a thoughtless person would interpret would try to make interpretations out of you know synonyms being used. There are some synonyms. He's going to concern him. He ends up saying he's going to concern himself with shot. Uh, he's going to concern himself with the simple meaning of the text. But for legal sections, I'm going to prefer Chazal's explanations. Given you know two feasible explanations, I'm going to prefer the the explanation of the sages when it comes to legal sections. Why? Because that's the basis of you know Torah Shabbat. Uh, and you know they are. Uh, he ends up saying very nice things about the sages. And uh, you know, ends up, uh, and that's the conclusion of his introduction. Okay, so let's let's sum up what we have in his approach. Okay, he's not someone who's going to interpret symbolically. He's not someone who's going to interpret, uh, you know, against halacha, against uh, you know the legal readings of the sages. He is going to reject Midrashim concerning the narrative portions, but he's not going to do that with uh, Chazal's explanations. As opposed to the Rashbam, who did away with Chazal's explanations for the entire Torah, uh, narrative or legal, 
Ibn Ezra is going to make a distinction between the two. Um, so there's a bifurcation of his approach here. Uh, you know, Midrashim can be, you know, disregarded if they're about the narrative portions of the text. The legal portions of the text, I have to, you know, interpret them the way that Chazal wanted me to. Uh, let's see him in action a little bit, okay? Um, Ibn Ezra on Bereshis, Lamed Gimel Dalid, Ibn Ezra on Genesis 33.4, um, there's, you know, a medrash when Yaakov and Esav meet after, you know, Esav chasing him and so on and so forth. Uh, there's a medrash, some of you were told uh, in, uh, you know, grade school that, uh, you know, uh, when it says uh, that Esav kissed him, um, there's a, you know, dot on Vayishakehu, the word, and he kissed him, which tells you that, you know, Esav didn't really try to kiss him, he tried to bite Yaakov, and then, you know, miraculously, Yaakov's neck turned to marble, and then Esav broke all of his teeth. Um, which, regardless of whether it's pshat or not, I I think you will agree that it is metal AF. Uh, neck turned into marble, breaking somebody's teeth, that's pretty metal. Uh, so, his comment on that uh, is, Tov hu la tike, uh, um, um, you know, it's good to, there's a lot of Midrashim on this. There's a lot of, you know, different, uh, you know, Midrashic ideas, including, you know, the neck marble thing. Um, on the simple level, there's no indication that Esav meant to do anything bad to his brother. Va'aid and you know proof for this. Va'yivchu kasher asa Yosef Yosef imachav, and it said and you know the proof for this is that it says and he cried, which Ibn Ezra thinks is um, you know similar to the way that Yosef uh, cry um, Yosef cries with his brothers when they're reunited. That you know there's a lack of ill will here. He's uh, he's also noted note by the way he's also using other times that a term is used to shed light on, you know, the context that it's, uh, context that it's used here. Uh, so we see here for narrative portions of the Torah, he's fine with rejecting Midrashim. Uh, I will add that he's, uh, particularly Midrashim that impute miraculous events to the text that aren't there. He is fine with accepting miracles in the text. In fact, part of his problem with like philosophical, uh, commentary is that, uh, you're interpreting against the Pshat to accomplish an aim of, you know, getting rid of miracles. But if it's not in the text, he feels no compunction to, you know, ascribe miracles that are outside of the text. Um, let's see, though, him on the legal portions. Last time we talked about the Rushbaum and how he, you know, reads like, you know, somebody who hasn't seen the text before, somebody who doesn't have, uh, you know, the legal exegesis of the sages. Uh, one example we saw of this is Tefillin. Uh, the verses describing tefillin, it says you should have it as a sign on your hand. And Rashbam says it's not really talking about tefillin, you know, the thing that you wrap around your hand. It's saying, like, you should have it around. You, you should, you know, know it like the back of your hand, to use an English colloquialism. Um, Ibn Ezra, though, will reject that idea. 
who says, there are those who dispute our holy ancestors and say being a sign and reminder has the same meaning as for they are, great, for they are a grateful wreath upon your head, a necklace up about your throat. In other words, we have other psukim in which, you know, it says that uh, you, uh, a graceful wreath upon your head, a necklace about your throat, talking about like, you know, wisdom in, in Mishle, and it doesn't really mean have a wreath upon your head, a necklace upon your throat. It's telling you you should have it around you always. Um, and they all they also suggest that tie them as a sign upon your arm as the same meaning as bind them upon the tablet of your heart always. That it's, you know, allegorical, uh, not allegorical, but like non-literal. Don't literally bind them on your hands, but, uh, you know, have them around, which is what the Rush Bomb says. Uh, so, however, this is an incorrect approach. That's what it is. This is an incorrect approach. For at the beginning of Proverbs, uh, Book of Proverbs, where we took that, that, uh, that verse at the beginning, it states the Proverbs of Solomon. Therefore, the reader should expect that everything mentioned in the book is a proverb and not literal. However, the Torah is not a book of Proverbs. God forbid, so that this verse must retain its literal meaning and we will not remove it from its pshat. For its literal meaning doesn't contradict any logical principle, as is the case for, and you shall circumcise your hearts, going back to the example that he used before of, you know, a verse in which you have to, you know, take, you have to take it as uh, not literal. There's no logical principle that tells me I can't do that when it's saying bind it on your, uh, bind it on your hands. So, and being as the book, the, the Torah is not a book of proverbs of, you know, non-literal statements, it's a book of, you know, law, then by its context and by the, the meaning of it, it does mean bind something in your hands, which means to fill it. So we see that he's defending the reading of Chazal as this, uh, of the sages as this referring to tefillin. However, um, he's not doing it just saying, like, you can't argue with Chazal. You can't do that. He's, he's defending it based on, like, a rational, you know, logical reading of the text. Um, so, let's go over his approach using our criteria, because he pretty much laid it out for us in the commentary, in you know, the introduction for his commentary, but let's lay it out, Okay. One, the, the first category, textual independence versus traditional text. The degree to which you're uh, interpreting the text as an independent text or, you know, through the eyes of, you know, uh, the sages exegesis. Um, he's halfway because for narrative portions, he believes in total independence, uh, maybe less than total independence because he's willing to take Madrashim seriously, but not, he doesn't feel bound to accept them. For legal portions, no. Uh, next category, literal meaning versus symbolic meaning. The degree to which you're willing to see symbolic meaning in the text versus the literal meaning of the text. He explicitly rejects that. Uh, you know, he says that's not even in the circle. Unless it's the obvious, simple meaning of, like, you need, like, you know, circumcise your heart, in which that's obviously not literal. Uh, symbolic meaning is right out, according to the uh, uh, Ibn, Ezra's, uh, Ibn Ezra's methodology. Rational reinterpretation versus unmediated text, the degree to which you're willing to reinterpret something in line with, you know, either rationality or, you know, philosophy or whatever. Uh, he's not a fan of philosophical commentaries, we saw. He doesn't really reinterpret interpret biblical miracles. He's definitely, uh, however, he's definitely a medieval rationalist, and he will see the text through that lens. Uh, he will go on some, you know, philosophical explications sometimes, and sometimes we'll see things through that lens, 
but he's not explicitly uh, setting out to do that. In fact, he's explicitly setting out to not do that. Um, linguistic omnisignificance versus linguistic contextualism, the degree to which you're willing to read into every single word versus you're willing to take you know, the language in context. I very much contextual. Um, very much you know, read it in context. He's not into like overreading. Uh, on the page versus by the book, the degree to which you're interpreting the verse in front of you versus um, you know interpreting in light of the whole book of you know taking other things into a, taking taking other other texts in the in in Chumash to uh, take get your meaning. He definitely uses the whole book. And uh, we saw with the riddles, he'll sometimes drop you breadcrumbs to find the other stuff. Like, um, if you go over here, you'll see my explanation over there. He's definitely got a organic hole to his commentary, and he's got all the pieces figured out. Um, he's not someone who likes to contradict himself for the most part. Um, when would you use Ibn Ezra? Number one, I want to understand the straightforward reading of the text. Uh, number two, I am uninterested in using Midrashim to explain the text. I'm uninterested in hearing, uh, you know, uh, you know, midrashic uh, stories to explain the text. Uh, I am, however, interested in reading a defense of the legal exegesis of Chazal that is more than you can say that, because he will ex he will explain how the reading of Chazal makes sense. Um, I am uh, another one. I am interested in grammar. Ibn Ezra is mostly grammar. Um, you know, because Ibn Ezra is, you know, such a fun, fun personality, I try to, you know, read through his commentary every week. Uh, a lot of it is dry grammar stuff, and that's re not really my thing. Um, but, you know, if you're interested in grammar, he's he's one of the people you should, uh, you should be looking at. Um, next, I want to read a commentary written by someone having fun, and I enjoy re re reading rabbinic insults. He's fun. He's fun sometimes. Uh, you'll see, you know, witty and, uh, witty put downs, uh, you'll see him, you know, having fun with riddles, having fun with hints, uh, you know, the next thing is actually, I enjoy being challenged with riddles. I enjoy, if you enjoy the prospect of, like, figuring out what somebody was trying to hint at, uh, Ibn Ezra's fun sometimes. This is, the two things that I brought is not the only time he does that. In fact, I once wrote a paper, uh, part of it was trying to figure out, like, um, he says in one one place, like, uh, when you read this commentary and this commentary, you'll piece together my opinion. He likes to do that. Um, so I want to wrap it up by asking the following asking the following question: What I'll call the Ibn Ezra's biggest riddle. He says that you know he's going to accept the legal exegesis of Chazal, uh, the legal exegesis of the sages, but not the narrative. Isn't that being inconsistent? Uh, is he being honest when he defends legal drash, if he feels that he has to? Does he feel that he has to? Uh, he does seem to have a penchant for secrecy. Uh, is he being, is he, you know, trying to save face by interpreting, you know, uh, the legal portions in line with Chazal? Is he trying to fit in? Is he trying to um, uh, ch trying to get away with his commentary? There's one school of thought that says he wanted to interpret. Uh, he, he, he like he wanted to interpret it, you know, completely uh, non-midrashically, but he couldn't get away with it. 
there's some truth to this. Like Rashbam could get away with it because, you know, Rashi's his grandfather. Rabbeinu Tam is his brother. Uh, he has, you know, a greater reputation as a halachist. And, uh, you know, if he says some, you know, crazy out there things, uh, he could, his standing is still unaffected because he's the, he's Rashbam. Uh, Ibn Ezra didn't have that. He's a wandering, itinerant, uh, you know, biblical commentator. He doesn't have, you know, the family connections or the, uh, or, you know, the reputation to get away with, you know, reading things in a way that's, uh, you know, heretical. Um, there's, there's, you know, that's not the only time in Jewish history that, uh, we see someone who had to play the game versus someone who didn't. Uh, one example I like to give is uh, Rav Soloveitchik and Rav Hutner. Um, Rav Joseph Soloveitchik, Rav Isaac Hutner, um, great, uh, you know, le- great authorities within Orthodoxy. Rav Soloveitchik explicitly, they, they both were in University of Berlin. Rav Soloveitchik was getting a degree. Rav Hutner was auditing classes. They probably were in Heidegger's class. Um, and Rav Hutner, they both were very knowledgeable in terms of, you know, modern philosophy and, you know, science. Rav Hutner spoke a lot of languages. Uh, he was the kind of person who, he, when he saw somebody reading Kant, would say uh, it was better than the original German. But Rav Soloveitchik is okay with saying, you know, I, I you know, I'm quoting Kant, I'm quoting, uh, you know, uh, Kierkegaard, whoever. Rav Hutner will never do that. Um, and one explanation that I've heard is that Rav Soloveitchik was from, as much as you can have a dynasty in the Lithuanian yeshiva tradition, uh, Rav Soloveitchik came from a dynasty of, uh, you know, his grandfather was, you know, the celebrator of Chaim Soloveitchik, a uh, great uh, teacher in the Volusian yeshiva. Um, you know, his great-grandfather was the base Halevi. Uh, you know, his uncles were rabbi. He, he was from like a, a, a very rabbinic family, very aristocratic rabbinic family. Rafunder was not. And uh, there's there's a lot of reason to say that Rafunder could not get away with the stuff that Rav Soloveitchik could because his last name wasn't Rav Soloveitchik. Uh, so there's a lot of merit to the idea that Ibn Ezra uh, didn't feel he could get away with stuff um, and had to, you know, play the game, so to speak. I don't think that's quite correct because that's assuming that, like, you know, he would have agreed with me if not for, like, external pressures. Um, but how do we explain that inconsistency? How do we explain, you know, how do we understand that idea that I could reject Chazal when it comes to the narrative portions, not, not for the legal portions? Uh, how do we, do we understand him being honest when he defends, if, if that same methodology applies uh, of rejecting the text, uh, rejecting Madrash, uh, the, the Madrashim because the text doesn't quite work out. Why does he never do that for the legal portions? Um, so I think that to understand it, you need to understand inconsistency is part of the religious experience. You know, we're, I, I see, you know, the Jewish tradition as, you know, us building a system of, you know, truth and ethics by a process of trial and error, a sort of moral laboratory. And sometimes you accept one part, and then, you know, something doesn't fit, and that's fine. There's a, there's a saying, you don't die from a question. 
and you know, Ibn Ezra had a question. You know, had a question. He firmly believed that Chazal were correct in their halakhic drash, um, but he could not believe that their narrative drash was necessarily correct. And you know, he ex- he he accepted that inconsistency. He said, you know, I'll figure it out. I'll f- if not if not be figuring out, someone else will. And you know, we sort of left that question of the secret of the twelve that you know proto-biblical criticism of Ibn Ezra up in the air. And maybe that was his attitude towards the secret of the Twelve also. I mean, maybe Ibn Ezra is saying, here's the thing you should notice. I don't know what to do with it. Future generations, pick that up for me. Figure it out. You know, doubt is okay. Inconsistency, conflict, struggle is okay. It's all part of the religious experience. The Ibn Ezra lived one hell of a life full of struggle, conflict, and consistency, trying to figure out for himself how everything fit together. Perhaps he was also trying to find somewhere he himself fit. Maybe that's why he traveled around. Maybe he was the original misfit, if you will. But Ibn Ezra Ezra was a fascinating, fascinating personality and someone who combined a lot of area uh, a lot of different areas a lot of different areas of expertise a lot of you know different ideas different cultures different things and trying to fit it all together into you know a coherent whole and he did the best he could and that's all that we should demand for people do the best he can the Ibn Ezra was widely used and popular and seen as one of the classic commentaries on the Torah that doesn't mean he's never been controversial. Despite, perhaps, his best efforts, the Ibn Ezra has been a lightning rod for critique by later authorities. Rabbi Shlomo Luria in the 17th century, in his introduction to his commentary on the Talmud, which is basically Rabbi Shlomo Luria saying to everybody, get off my lawn. But we'll get into that when we do that show. Uh, he goes so far as to call the Ibn Ezra a fake scholar who didn't know how to learn. Uh, perhaps that's exactly what the Ibn Ezra would have liked. He could dish it. I'm sure he could take it. But despite that, despite that controversy, Ibn Ezra's commentaries remained a classic, and despite the criticism, is still beloved and revered by his successors. One medieval commentator summed up that relationship best. Tuchachat Megula Ve'ava Misterah. Okay? Open rebuke and hidden love. That commentator, a true genius who wrote a masterpiece of biblical commentator that, in my opinion, has yet to be equaled, was the Ramban, or Nachmanides. And that's going to be our subject next week. Stay tuned. Uh, just want to end off by thanking uh, the virtual Beit Midrash from Yeshiva Haaretzion for their uh, great biblical commentators series, which was a great help here. I'd like to also thank uh, the YU class Intro to Bible with Professor Moshe Bernstein, which is really uh, the genesis of most of my knowledge about this stuff and uh, the start of you know my fascination with this stuff. And uh, I still consulted the notes from that class to build this, uh, to build not only this, but Rashi, Rashbam, um, and I encourage you to check those, uh, out and, you know, 
start finding your own cool Ebenezer stuff. All right. I'll see you next. I'll, you'll hear from me next week, and uh, we'll do the Ramban, and it's going to be fun. Don't forget to subscribe to our Patreon, like our Facebook page, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter and whatever else. <laughs>